Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for September 9th, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Returning to Forthright Radio to discuss the latest in his Hidden History series is broadcaster, journalist, author, and four-time winner of the Project Censored Award, Tom Hartman. His new book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness, is being released by Barrett Kohler Publishers on September 13th. As Greg Pallas writes in his foreword, quote, squeezed into this thin volume is a huge amount of I didn't know that info that's both horrifying and weirdly fun. I didn't know that George W. Bush's Medicare Modernization Act of 2003 resulted in the quiet privatization of nearly half of Medicare's services. Yow, end quote. Yow, indeed. Welcome back to Forthright Radio, Tom Hartman. Hey, Joy, it's great to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Tom, your latest book in the Hidden History series, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness, is about to be released by Barrett Kohler Publishers on September 13, 2022. By my count, this is number eight in the series, and it joins your 30-plus other books. Greg Pallast wrote the foreword, and who knew that Chicago labor leaders had sent him to study with Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago in 1975? Yeah, wasn't that hysterical? Yeah, great way to begin this book. Anyway, Greg writes, and I'm quoting, Bless Tom Hartman for exposing the neoliberalism genesis story, end of that quote. And I can only add amen to that. But before we get into the heart of your book, please remind our listeners what we mean by the liberal in neoliberal. It's not the way the average American uses the term liberal. That's correct, Joy. In Europe, liberal economics or liberal politics, for that matter, are thought of as uh, laissez-faire, as, as hands-off, government, uh, small government, low taxes, no government regulation, very little interference in the marketplace. That's what liberal means in Europe. Here in the United States, it means the opposite of that. And so that confuses a lot of people. And the, the guys who started this movement, arguably in the 30s, I mean, that was the, or the first meeting, but it really picked up steam in the 40s. And it got solidified when they wanted to name the movement. They wanted it to be clear that this was an outgrowth of the liberal movement in Europe. That is the movement to kind of reverse things like the National Health Service in, in the United Kingdom or do away with the welfare state like, you know, the northern European countries are so famous for. But they wanted to go beyond just the ordinary conservative Europeans would refer to as liberal politicians. And so they came up with this word uh, neoliberal, a neo, the Greek word for meaning new. So they're the new liberals, what we would call here the new conservatives. So, well, we have our own term neoconservatives here. But that's where it came from. I would appreciate it if you would take a moment and talk about the historical context in which the individuals that you write about in the book came together, because I think it's important for us to understand that. Well, you know the old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Neoliberalism is a great example of that. 
in the 30s and early 40s, we were seeing around the world the rise of fascism in Europe, uh, you know, specifically Germany, Italy, and, and Spain, and also the rise of communism in Russia and a number of other uh, Eastern European countries as the Soviet Union expanded and solidified its, its grip. And so there was this group of economists. They, they first met in the 30s and then in Paris, and then they got together regularly starting every year in 1940. I forget the year. I think 47. It's in the book. In uh, Mont Pelerin or Mount Pelerin. It's Mont in, in German. Switzerland. And thus the Mont Pelerin Society is what they called their group. And their goal was to try to provide European countries, uh, specifically in the United States as well, basically democracies, with an economic and political system that would be resistant to becoming communist or becoming fascist. Abe Maslow's famous old saying, you know, the psychologist, uh, when, when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem in the world looks like a nail. It was very true here. Uh, these were economists getting together, and so they assumed that economics would be the salvation of, of democracies. And so their solution was to lay out these so-called neoliberal reforms to, to reform democracies in a way that uh, would be more friendly to uh, big business and billionaires on the assumption that business and billionaires would never be fans of either fascism or communism. And just to further set the context, um, there was a global massive depression happening at this time, and a lot of revolutions or potentials for revolution were happening. So as you go on, Tom Hartman, to talk about the individuals who were part of this movement, that was their milieu. They were living through that. And I... I have a bit of sympathy for them because I see our world as like falling apart now. And I also see people grasping for solutions. Some of them seem more constructive than others. So anyway, I kind of identify with where they were coming from, even if I don't agree with what they came up with. Yeah, that's why I said good intentions. Yeah, exactly. So tell us about the individuals that you highlight in the book who created this. Would you say a movement is, is a correct way to call it? Oh, absolutely. It, yeah. and, it, and it is a movement to this day. It's a, it's a movement that has taken over the political and economic systems wholly of several countries and largely of several others. But yeah, it's definitely a movement. And the three guys who are generally considered the godfathers of neoliberalism were Milton Friedman, who was an American economist who taught at the University of Chicago School of Economics, von Hayek and von Mises. Frederick von Hayek, and I'm forgetting von Mises' first name. Ludwig von Mises. Ludwig, that's right. So we've that's got right. these Ludwig. two guys, von this and von that. Does that mean they were aristocrats? Yeah, they were both descended from European nobility. They were neither one of them were billionaires or anything like that, but they were well to do and they were economists. So they, they, they both had a background in economics. In fact, Mises was a student of Hayek or the other way around. I forget which was which came first. I'm sorry. I, I think you have von Mises is first. Hayek was his student. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense, actually, because, you know, Hayek moved to the United States and, and had kids at the time. So he would have been the younger one. 
and they went on to write books. Mises and, and Hayek both uh, wrote a number of books. Uh, the Road to Serfdom is probably the best, the most well-known, but there's a bunch of them. And pitching this this idea, they they were very much men of their times. I mean, they they believed in white supremacy. They believed in the the superiority of white people genetically. They believed in the in the cultural superiority of uh, Anglo-Saxon culture. One of the premises of neoliberalism is that social trends, social social norms are the consequence of, of thousands of years or at least hundreds of years of social evolution and therefore should always be honored. And anything that challenges social norms should be looked at with a very, very jaundiced eye, specifically things like accepting whether we have gays in society, accepting racial segregation, accepting the, that women have a subordinate role in society and, and the, the principal realm in which women should work is the kitchen and the bedroom. They were big advocates of those positions because they said uh, that's how it's always been and therefore it was evolution that produced those things and therefore they must produce the best outcome. And frankly, if you live in a world where the group with the largest army wins the wars and gets to survive and the group with the smallest army gets wiped out, which was the world for much of the thousands of years that preceded the modern era, then you could argue, values free, but you could argue that oppressing women and, and pressing them basically into service like broodmares, you know, just baby machines, is a good thing for society. I don't think you can argue that anymore, but they really had no interest in considering changing social norms and mores, you know, in addition to their economics. Tom, I would just insert right there, there are actually segments in the United States that are saying that now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Catholic Church for one of them. I mean, you know, they want more more Catholics, you know, it's, uh, that, which has always been the case. It's their modern opposition to birth control, which is really only about 100 years old, and, and abortion. And it's not just the Catholics, obviously. Now you've got inside the evangelical movement this whole thing about putting women back in the bedroom in the kitchen so that they can become baby machines. Absolutely. Yeah, good. I'm glad we clarified that. Okay, so you illuminate in the chapter called Neoliberalism Goes to Work. You've already mentioned some of the tenets, but I wonder if you could expand on that because that that starts to have real-world impacts, at least in the 1970s in Chile. And, and so share with our listeners some of the tenets. Yeah, well, well, neoliberalism believes that basically any kind of interference in the marketplace, and I kind of put that in quotation marks, but any kind of interference in the marketplace, including taxes, including regulations. I mean, Milton Friedman even argued that there should be no licensing. Uh, he, he's got a whole chapter in one of his books about how licensing doctors is an inappropriate interference in the market. So their first sales pitch was that neoliberalism would solve inflation. And that's how they used the 1970s, the inflation of the 1970s, to get a foothold here in the United States. That was one of the main reasons why Reagan embraced neoliberalism. They believed that because the so-called free market Again, arguably some truth to this, millions of decisions are being made literally every minute in the marketplace in, in just in America. People choosing to buy one brand of orange juice over another or one pair of jeans over a different one or, you know, whatever. And uh, their argument was that all of that is a kind of a collective wisdom. 
and that it would be impossible for a bureaucrat or a politician to ever understand the dynamics, the, this, the continually changing dynamics of the marketplace in a way that would allow them to rationally and reasonably regulate the marketplace or direct the marketplace. And therefore, the marketplace should direct politics rather than the other way around. And of course, the consequence of that we're seeing right now in the United States, which is that basically the wealthiest and richest and most powerful of the corporations uh, have come to dominate the marketplace. And as a result of that, the average American pays about $5,000 a year more for, for pretty much everything collectively than does the average citizen of Canada or Europe. So I refer to that as the monopoly tax in my book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, because of that deregulation. They disagree with all state-owned enterprises. They think that you know Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, food stamps, uh, housing supports, all those things are government interferences in the marketplace and therefore need to be stopped or, or killed off. They argue that we need to take government back to the size that it was before, basically before World War I, when government was about 5 or 6% of GDP. Right now, government in the United States is about, I think it's around 30%. In, in Canada, it's around 40%. But they want to shrink government radically. And, and part of the way that they want to do this is by cutting taxes radically, particularly taxes on rich people and corporations. And then finally, the, you know, this idea that property rights are really the reason why the Constitution was created. You know, John Locke's famous quote from second, his second treatise on government was life, liberty, and the right to private property. And Jefferson, of course, changed private property to happiness because at that point in time, it was not illegal to own private property, whereas 100 years ago in England, it was illegal for the, for the serfs, for the bottom 95% of people in England to, to own private property. So these are the basic things. They, they argued that uh, the best metaphor for governance is the family, and therefore you need a strong kind of alpha male leader uh, who's running that thing, that the welfare state is another wrongful intervention that when you have large quantities of inequality, a lot of the rich people are vastly rich and the poor people are terribly poor, that that's actually a sign that the economy and the, and the society is working correctly because it's, it's rewarding the, the productive people and it's punishing the people who aren't productive. They absolutely hated labor unions and wanted them to be basically destroyed, which Reagan, of course, set about doing. And if wealthy people can figure out a way to avoid paying taxes, good on them. You know, more more of that. So that's the, the those are the basic tenets of neoliberalism. It's interesting that you pointed out that it was the high inflationary period of the 1970s that allowed more receptivity to their ideas. And we are currently in an inflationary period in the United States, and people are kind of freaking out about it. And although I lived through the 70s, my memory needed the review that you gave in your book to what was happening. And even in conversation, when we talked about inflation, people would always bring up Jimmy Carter, because that's when it was the worst, and, it, and interest rates were the worst. He got stuck with it, is what really happened. And similarly, it seems to me that the Obama administration got stuck with the crash of 2008. So it's important for 
us to remember correctly how these things happen. And Tom, as you explain in the book, that all got set in motion when uh, Richard Nixon took the United States economy off of the gold standard. And then the politics of the Middle East caused the oil embargo. And that's what started the inflation. And I have to say, compared to what other countries experience, and I'm not in any way minimizing the hardships people are experiencing, but there are other countries where they have like 300, 3,000% inflation. Oh, yeah. I mean, right right now, there, there are, for example, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, the Baltic states, and this is because of the, the Russian energy crisis, as it were. They're experiencing inflation rates in the 50s to 70% range. But yeah, what happened in the 70s was uh, Nixon devalued the dollar twice, about 10% each time. A devaluation most affects people and businesses that are involved in international trade that are having to interact with other currencies. But eventually it comes home in the form of inflation or the reduction of value of of the currency. And then in 73, of course, there was the seven-day war, I believe it was called. And the United States took the side of Israel against the Arabs. And the Arabs said, okay, uh, enough of that. And they cut off our oil supply. And because oil is the, the commodity that out of which everything else comes. I mean, we, we use oil to, to drive the tractors that make our food, to, to make the fertilizers and the pesticides that, that to make their farms productive, to, to bring our food to market. For every literally every product at some point interacted with, if it's not made of, like all plastics, for example, are made of oil. If it's not made of oil, it interacted with oil, and uh, typically in, form, in the form of transportation. And so when you have the price of oil doubling or tripling or quadrupling, as happened in the early 70s, the impact of that is to increase the price of everything, and because the cost of oil is built into the cost of everything. And I think the average American understood it for a while, at least in 73, 74, maybe even 75, that this was the cost of you know, supporting Israel. But even long after the Arabs stopped the, the Arab oil boycott but, or embargo. But you know, when you combine that with that devaluation, and then in 79, we got hit again when the Shah of Iran was overthrown. And Iran was a major oil producer in the world. And the Iranians stopped all their oil production. And that, again, there was another second wave of spikes of oil prices. And at that point, uh, Americans in general were just so frantic about stopping inflation. I remember that that year or the next year, Louise and I bought a house with like a 13% mortgage. I mean, it was just crazy. People were paying 15% in some cases for mortgages. And so people were so frantic about inflation that when Milton Friedman came along and said, I have the solution to inflation, it's neoliberalism. All you need to do is cut government spending and cut taxes on rich people and inflation will go away. And Reagan came into office with that promise that he was going to do that. He did. It. And, and, and surprise, surprise, inflation went away. I mean, it did, it did work out. So anyway, that's what happened there. And, and the inflation just got worked out the way that inflation normally does get worked out. That is to say that it takes about a decade for a major inflationary shock like we had in 1973, particularly combined with Nixon's reduction in the value of the dollar. It takes about a decade for that to work out of the system, just like the inflationary shock of the oil production reductions that Trump negotiated with the Saudis. 
uh, he negotiated a deal with them where they would reduce their their oil output. You know, this was during the pandemic when nobody was using oil and the price of oil was down around $30 a barrel and it was making Texas oil men just, yeah, they were going bankrupt. And so to, to bail out the Texas guys, Kushner went over and negotiated this deal where they cut the production from Saudi Arabia and they still haven't raised the production back up yet. The Saudis don't like Joe Biden and they figure that if they can hurt Democrats and get Republicans back into power, it'll work to their advantage. And and uh, so we're still in this, although it is moderating somewhat, but it typically takes somewhere between five and 10 years for any kind of major inflationary shock to just bring itself out of the economy, no matter what you do. But Reagan and neoliberalism took all the credit for ending inflation. By 1983, it was pretty much gone. And they said, see, we did it. It was magic. We did it. Right. Milton Friedman and the whole neoliberal Chicago University School had their big experiment in Chile, September 11th, 1973, Augusto Pinochet staged a successful coup against the social democratic government of Salvador Allende. And I would love it, Tom Hartman, if you would very briefly talk about Allende's regime, which, as you portray it, is far less radical than is typically depicted in the histories as we know it in the United States, in the in the mainstream media. He was far less radical than he's portrayed. Well, it depends on how you determine, how you define radical. He took the progressives who were opposed to his neoliberal policies and took them in helicopters and threw them out over the ocean. <laughs> so, no, 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 not Pinochet. I mean, Salvador Allende. Oh, Allende. I'm yes. sorry. I'm, yeah, no, Allende was just, Salvador Allende was like the Bernie Sanders. He was not, they called him a socialist. He called himself a socialist, even. He was a believer in social democracy. He was trying to, to reinvent Chile and sort of like Switzerland or, or Sweden, rather. And yeah, you're right. He was, he was not, not a crazy man. But the right in the United States, who heavily supported uh, Pinochet's overthrow of Allende's regime, and IT&T, I mean, IT&T owned the, the phone systems in Chile, and there were three big American copper companies that owned the largest copper mine in the world, which is in Chile, and or several of these mines. And they were extracting massive amounts of wealth out of Chile, and the Chileans were very unhappy about that. And so they kind of got together and said, we got to get rid of this Allende guy and, and replace him with somebody who will protect our investments. And that was Pinochet, along with the CIA. So what was the effect of the neoliberalism in Chile? Well, it, 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 it first of all, it, it just devastated the economy. I mean, you know, they, they, they tried this so-called shock therapy. And the economy went into a tailspin. Unemployment went up. Inflation went up. It just gutted the economy. And a lot of people were very, very upset about that, which is why uh, Pinochet, you know, started the whole let's torture people thing. So not a good thing, generally speaking. Do people who propose the neoliberal things, do they have anything to say about the contradiction between the hands-off government in economic affairs versus the tendency towards repression by governments when trying out these neoliberal regimes? I don't really know, but the bottom line is that if you're going to impose a form of government that is unpopular 
and the idea of of shutting down a lot of the government-owned industries, privatizing others. Pinochet also privatized their social security system there, turned it over to the bankers, and they, and that and the bankers then stole so much of that money that people lost their their life savings, their their pensions, their social security. You know, it really pissed off a lot of people, and they started fighting back, and that's why Allende started. He set up the the national stadium as a as a torture center. No, no, and Pinochet. We're getting him. Pinochet. To- yeah, <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm wandering back and forth here. But yeah, Pinochet did that. Thank you, Joy. And uh, it, you know, it was uh, if. If you're going to govern in a way that you don't have the people with you, you basically have two choices. Either you could propagandize the people to the point where they go along with what you're arguing. And you, in order to do that, you really have to have control of the media and you have to be very sophisticated in, in how you're doing it, which is what conservatives in the United States are trying to do right now. You know, with phony newspapers, there's like 1,200 community newspapers now in the United States owned by this little right-wing group that, and they're just naked rags promoting neoliberalism, among other things. Or you've got to use brutality. You've got to use force. And uh, that's what Pinochet did. That's what Hitler did. That's what Stalin did, frankly. Uh, It's what Benito Mussolini did. It's, It's what Franco did in Spain. So... Here we yeah, are. Yeah. You go on and talk about the neoliberal bent after the Soviet Union broke down. If we have time, we can go back to that. But I would prefer that you talk about how neoliberalism changed America in the past 40 years, beginning with Reagan. Reagan imposed neoliberalism on the United States. It was an effort to reverse the New Deal, which was creating what Reagan referred to as big government. He proclaimed this in his inaugural address on January 20th, 1981, when he became president, when he said that people believe that government is going to solve their problems. He said the government is not the solution to our problems. It is it is the problem. And he dramatically cut taxes on the wealthy, the top income tax rate. Personal income tax rate was 74% when Reagan came into office. Top corporate rate was 55%. He lowered those both down to in, in the 20s. He went after unions in a big way. Patco had been one of only th- two or three unions, as I recall, to endorse him for president. And so they thought they were safe and they could go on strike. And they went on strike and he destroyed that union and and punished its members basically for the rest of their lives. And we went from about a third of Americans having a good union job to today it's around 6% in the private sector. So he went after the unions after he cut the taxes. He, he did everything he could to deregulate industry, dialing back pollution controls, but dialing back food safety, dialing back consumer product safety and things. Everything he could to, to pursue the neoliberal agenda. He was a true believer in Milton Friedman and, and their, their ideology. So it began with Reagan, but it didn't end there. Briefly talk about the presidencies since then, both Republican and Democratic, that have continued this. Yeah. When neoliberalism started in, in, in the 1980s under Reagan, uh, uh, under I mean, nobody called it neoliberalism at the time. They referred to it as trickle-down economics or supply-side economics. When that started, there were people across the political spectrum who thought, well, you know, let's give it a try. You know, maybe there's something to this. Maybe these economists have, have come up with something that, that makes sense. There had only been this one single experiment that was in Chile, and it hadn't even really fully played itself out yet. And, uh, you know, I mean, it failed terribly, but there was not a consensus about that. And so when Reagan was pitching this stuff, 
And then George Herbert Walker Bush came along. He was less of a believer in neoliberalism, but he was willing to at least maintain the policies. And then we got Bill Clinton. And well, actually, we had even even the tail end of the Carter administration. This is before Reagan. The last two years of the Carter administration, Jimmy Carter deregulated the railroads and deregulated the air travel industry. Margaret Thatcher really kicked this off in 78 when she became prime minister. And so within the Democratic Party, there was some acceptance of neoliberalism. And then Reagan and Bush negotiated the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, which led to the World Trade Organization. And and they negotiated what ultimately became in 1992, the uh, North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. And uh, this was their baby. I mean, it came out of these two Republican administrations, these major neoliberal reforms. But Bill Clinton bought into them completely. I mean, this brought Ross Perot into the presidential election of 1992, and he carried 20% 20 of the American vote, 19.5% of the vote, because the American people were not with this whole neoliberal agenda. They were very skeptical of it. But Clinton embraced it and made proclamations throughout his presidency that, that were pure neoliberalism. You know, the era of big government is over and we've ended welfare as we know it and things like that. George W. Bush then became president after Clinton. And he, of course, you know, embraced neoliberalism with a massive tax cut that initially was perceived to be about a trillion dollar tax cut, but so far has added over $4 trillion to the national budget deficit, basically moving $4 trillion out of the pockets of the working class and into the pockets of the top 1%. There's been a fully a $50 trillion transfer of wealth from middle class, working class people in 1980 to the top 1% today. George W. Bush was was followed by Barack Obama, who also embraced neoliberalism. Obamacare is a classic example of, of neoliberalism. It's using private companies to accomplish a public good. One of the big phrases that neoliberals love is public-private partnerships, which is just a fancy way of saying anything the government should do, get a private corporation involved so somebody can make a buck off it, because that's how the market's supposed to work. Joe Manchin, for example, got built into both the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, specific legislation that calls for every penny spent to go through the hands of a for-profit corporation through these so-called public-private partnerships. That's just pure neoliberalism. So finally, we've got a president who's starting to push back on some of the aspects of neoliberalism and Joe Biden, although Joe Biden has been largely a neoliberal most of his life. But I think he's I think he's recognized in the last two years that uh, this is a uh, short track to disaster and and he's um, recalibrated his perspectives. Which gives me a lot of hope, frankly. Yes, you, you do maintain hope throughout all this. Part of what you've done in your book is you address the question of how to rebuild the middle class gutted by neoliberalism. But before you get into the reconstruction, talk about how the middle class got gutted in the first place. This was Reagan's great project. There really were two pieces to this. And I I think one of the, the, the piece that has to do with the dangers of a middle class I, I dealt with in a previous book, The Hidden History of Oligarchy, American Oligarchy. And that was, you know, Russell Kirk in 1951. He wrote this book called The Conservative Mind. And in it, he laid out a hypothesis 
that at that time, the American middle class was growing faster than any middle class had in the history of the world. There had never been a middle class that even approached 50% of the population ever in any country in the history of the world. The middle class in the United States in the census of 1900, for example, you know, fewer than 10% of Americans were what you would call middle class today. The average American salary in today's dollars was $4,300 a year, the average uh, family income. So people were very poor. You had widespread poverty in the United States. So when Russell Kirk wrote this book and everybody thought the growing middle class was a good thing, he said, no, this is not a good thing. He said, eventually what's going to happen is people are going to be wealthy enough that they will not be intimidated by social norms. And you're going to see women demanding a place in the workplace. You're going to see young people uh, defying their elders. You're going to see blacks and other minorities ignoring their appropriate place in society. And the solution to this is to gut the middle class. You've got to, you got to impoverish basically the middle class. Otherwise, they're going to create a social chaos. And when Russell Kirk pitched this in the 50s, uh, you know, they, he had a few, few true believers. Barry Goldwater was one. William F. Buckley was another. But most conservatives and most Republicans didn't take it seriously. They kind of laughed at it until the 1960s. And then the birth control pill was legalized and, and, and then abortion was legalized in 73 and the women's movement was kicked off and young people were saying, hell no, I'm not going to go to Vietnam. And, and black people were demanding rights through the civil rights movement. And at that point, the Republican Party kind of collectively went, holy cow, Russell Kirk was right. We've got to gut the middle class. And that became part of the big project of, of Reaganism. Now, that was that was independent of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism became the mechanism that Reagan used to gut the middle class and, and carried it forward with that. But the destruction of labor unions, um, refusing to raise the minimum wage. I mean, the minimum wage, if it was the same as it was in the 1960s, would be about $20 an hour right now. All of these things were part of this project basically, to reinvent America back along the lines of what they refer to as a classical economy, which is the economy that Charles Dickens wrote about, where you've got a top 1% who control and own virtually all the wealth and all the political power in the country, the royal family and the big landowners and industry, followed by a small middle class, typically 3 to 5% of the population. That was what Scrooge was. He was the middle class. He owned a, a little tiny company with two employees, himself and Bob Cratchit. He was a small, small businessman. And then you've got the 95% of the country that are the working poor. That's the vision that Reagan was pushing us back toward. That's the vision that neoliberalism will produce. And that's, you know, what's happened in every country where it's been tried, whether it's Iraq or Russia, the United States, uh, you know, we're seeing it over and over and over again. You introduced me to many things. And one of them was Alexander Hamilton's 11-step American plan, but before that, tell us about Henry VII's Tudor plan. Sure. When Henry VII was king, it was like in the 1500s, as I recall. England was a very, very backward country. And it was like dirt roads and thatched huts. And, and their primary products that they produced were like wool and clothing and things. You know, it's just a, a poor backwater. And Henry looked at what the Dutch had done. The Dutch really started this. And the Dutch trading companies at that time kind of ruled the oceans and said, hey, let's let's try this. And, and the Tudor plan was putting tariffs on the import of foreign manufactured goods, taxes on those imported goods so that domestically manufactured goods would have a price advantage and there would be an, an incentive for 
domestic companies to manufacture things. Reducing or eliminating tariffs on exports or even subsidizing exports so that your manufacturing capacity could be extended into other countries. In other words, the products of your manufacturer could be sold overseas. Providing incentives to new up-and-coming industries that had the possibility of helping the country leap forward in a positive direction. You could do that either through direct government grants or you could do that through tax law changes, whether they be credit, tax credits or tax uh, deductions, other forms of subsidies. Those are the broad, the largest of the broad strokes of the of Hamilton's eleven point plan, the American plan. And Hamilton, you know, this goes back to the story of George Washington. When George Washington was informed by Henry Knox that he had just become, uh, he was just elected president. He was in Mount Vernon at the time. Um, he asked Knox to go to Connecticut. Up until that point, the British had controlled the manufacture and import of fine clothing. And this guy, Daniel Hinsdale, was running an illegal underground pre-revolutionary war, illegal underground tailor shop in Connecticut. And, and it was basically the only one where you could get fine clothing. And so George Washington sent off his measurements and, and he was because he, he wanted to be inaugurated in an American suit. And he was and he was he was inaugurated wearing a, a brown American suit. Um, he had this suit from Hinsdale. And so after that, with that experience of, of wanting something made in America and not being able to get it and not being able to find sources for it. He went to his Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, and said, how do we encourage manufacturing in the United States? How can we have the kind of growth and renaissance of a new society like England did under Henry VII? How can we do that? And so basically following the Tudor plan, Alexander Hamilton laid out this 11-point plan. He called it the American plan. He, he, uh, he introduced it here. He, he presented it to George Washington and to Congress in 1791. It was all largely agreed upon by 1793. Congress had put much of it into law, and, and Washington had implemented some of it by executive order. And it stood until the 1980s. It made America the richest manufacturer in the world. I mean, it did the same thing for America it had done for England in the, in the 15 and 1600s, in early 1700s, and what it had done for the Dutch before that, the 14 and 1500s. And until the 1980s, when we abandoned it, by and large, in, in favor of neoliberalism. So that was that was it, the American plan. And that's and I end the book saying, you know, this is one of the most important things that we need to bring back because, as Adam Smith pointed out, the wealth of a nation is the stuff that you make. When you turn raw materials into something of value, that is how you produce wealth. Even if you sell that overseas, that wealth comes back to you in the form of the payment for that good. Um, I think the example that Smith used in Wealth of Nations was an axe handle. You know, if you've got a tree limb sitting on the ground, it has no intrinsic value. But if you add human labor to it, then it becomes an axe handle, which has considerable value and value that lasts for generations in some cases. And so the whole idea was to rebuild American manufacturing. Yes, and, and we've gone rather far in the direction of what's being called the service economy or the finance economy, and it's not really producing anything. I'm not disparaging the work that people in the service economy do, but in terms of producing things, it doesn't do that. Right. If I, if I uh, wash your car and, and you mow my lawn, 
we may pay each other for that or we may trade it out or whatever and it looks like you know money is changing hands and things are getting done but there's nothing lasting there's no lasting value that comes out of either one of those things and so a service economy is a it's kind of an oxymoron i mean manufacturer manufacturing is what makes countries rich it's why china went from having a national gdp of less than a trillion dollars in the 1980s china in in the very early 1990s embraced hamilton's american plan they they there's a big debate in the late 80s in china over whether they should embrace neoliberalism the way that russia did or whether they should embrace Hamilton's American plan like we did up until the 1980s. And they ultimately decided, Cho and Lai, and decided to go with the American plan. And so, in fact, I, was, I lived in China for a month in November of 1988, which was around the time this was all going on. And so China went from being dirt poor, I mean, literally dirt poor, to being now next year, probably they're going to surpass the United States as the largest economy in the world. And it's all because we moved our manufacturing to China. And therefore, all the wealth that came about as a result of that manufacturing, and not all of it, but much of it stayed in China. Yes. And you point out that South Korea and Japan also took similar courses. Tom Hartman, we've recently acknowledged the death of Mikhail Gorbachev. And I was kind of surprised that you actually attended a dinner with him at one time. I would love it if you would share your thoughts on him and his legacy. Yeah, Gorbachev was a a true believer in democratic socialism. He wanted to reinvent Russia in the mold of Sweden, and he said so out loud on numerous occasions. But the problem was that as Glasnost and Perestroika led to the end of the Soviet Union in in the late 80s and early 90s, the question was, okay, what next? And and Gorbachev was, let's build our economy using something like the American plan and and let's build a social safety net and a social welfare system using something very similar to Sweden's plan. And of course, Sweden also embraces the American plan. They have import tariffs and things. And the neoliberals who ran at that point in time the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, came in and said, uh, you know, it's going to take billions, trillions of dollars to accomplish what you want to reform Russia, the former Soviet Union, into a modern Russia. And we're not going to give you the money unless you go unless you do this along neoliberal lines, because, you know, neoliberalism is our thing. We, we, We think it's the solution to all problems. And so Gorbachev and uh, ultimately it was really Boris Yeltsin, Yeltsin was kind of enthusiastic about it because he was just a dummy. He had no idea what he was doing and he was drunk most of the time. But Russia embraced neoliberalism. The the, the Chicago boys went over there and supervised the, the privatization of everything. And it produced, as it always does, a large class of very poor people and a small class of very, very rich people. The, we refer to them as the Russian oligarchs. An oligarchy like that, neoliberalism, basically, is incompatible with democracy. I think that's one of the themes of the book. I'm not sure if I ever come out and say it explicitly, but I think it's fairly obvious by the time you've read the book that neoliberalism harms democracies and harms the ability of a democracy to function. And, and frankly, I think that all the, all the problems that we're seeing in this country right now with, with Trump and the hard right and all these crazies are the consequence of 40 years of neoliberalism gutting the American middle class. We went from, in 1981, 65% of Americans were middle class. Now it's 45%. 
You can't raise a family and buy a house and buy a car and take a vacation every year and put aside money for old age and put your kids through college with a single income anymore. You could in, in at least you know 65% of the population could in 1981. And so as our middle class has gotten progressively more and more poor as a consequence of Reaganomics or neoliberalism, what has come out of that is a whole lot of finger pointing. You know, who did this to me? And and of course, the Republican Party is very happy to say, oh, it's the black people, it's the brown people, it's the immigrants, it's the Muslims, it's the gay people. They're the ones who did this to you. It's the Democrats. And gets people pretty cranked up. Tom Hartman, we are recording this on September 7th, 2022. And yesterday, you published on the Tom Hartman Report an essay called Will America See a Second Major Renewal of the Middle Class? And you say that you are hopeful right now that you believe we're on the cusp of a new great turning of American history. Would you say what you mean by that, please? Yeah, I, I believe that to be the case. Stanley Tolchin uh, proposed that there were these 40-year cycles in American history, that, that and, and I think you could argue that they were kind of embedded within the 80-year cycles that Strauss and Howe talk about in their books, like The Fourth Turning. And that, you know, it takes about two generations for people to figure out that this new system doesn't work as well as we thought it would and try something different. And we've had two generations. We've had 40 years now of neoliberal policy. And Americans are figuring out that this does not work and there has to be a better way. And I'm optimistic, frankly, that that realization is going to carry us forward into a new New Deal kind of time. At least I'm hopeful. And what signs do you see of that? You've got a massive explosion of uh, union efforts in, in giant companies that have virtually unlimited resources to fight unionization, which, by the way, they can do with tax-deductible dollars. We subsidize the anti-union efforts of companies like Starbucks and Amazon. So you've got that. You've got people demanding that rich people pay their fair share of taxes. You know, your average billionaire these days is paying around a 3% income tax. Many are paying, like Donald Trump, you know, 19 years paid nothing in income taxes. Many of them pay nothing. And yet he, you know, he made millions, perhaps billions. And uh, so there's, there's, you know, kind of a renewal around that. There is a new interest. There's a new civil rights movement, much like the 60s, that extends beyond just African-Americans and beyond just race. I mean, you know, there's a gender-based, the women's rights movement, and there's the gender identity-based, the LGBTQ rights movement that are growing. I see all these things as, as, as really positive signs. I mean, the, I, I think the Zoomers, you know, the, the under 30s, the, the, this generation coming up right now, I think they're going to be like the generation that, that helped FDR bring about a transformation, a positive transformation of America and build the middle class. Do you credit Bernie Sanders with accomplishing some of this? He's, I'm not quite sure how to phrase the question, but what role do you think Bernie Sanders has had in changing consciousness around this? He's been the avatar of the movement, kind of its, its spirit animal, its, uh, uh, its spokesperson. Uh, and Bernie has been talking about these issues literally his entire life. And for 11 years, he did so on my radio show every Friday. We, we had this segment called Brunch with Bernie, where he took calls from listeners. And, uh, and now there are others who are also saying it. You know, you have Elizabeth Warren and Sherrod Brown and Ro Khanna and Mark Pocan and others. And 
I don't think that a lot of what has happened would have happened had burning up been out there like the Energizer Bunny for so long. And particularly with the 2016 and 2020 elections, I mean, he proved that these ideas, that, you know, conventional wisdom, particularly neoliberal conventional wisdom, was that these ideas are widely rejected and nobody wants it. And it's tired old New Deal stuff and, and uh, you know, quack, quack. But in, in actual fact, people are very fond of these ideas and very excited about the possibility that we can have a country with a strong social safety net and, and, a, and a vital middle class that's actually growing, even if it means at the expense of, you know, having, uh, well, right now we've got three billionaires who own more wealth than the bottom 50% of Americans. That's nuts. Yeah, it is. Well, Tom Hartman, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America, and How to Restore Its Greatness will be coming out next week. What final words do you have to share with our listeners? I think that we're at one of those hinge points in history, and there has never been a more vital time, at least in my lifetime, to get out there, get active, and and be part of the change that that I believe is happening right now all around us. So, So get out there, get active, tag your it. (laughs) Thank you very much for joining us again on Forthright Radio. Tom Hartman. Thank you, Joy. It's always a pleasure. You have just heard a conversation with Tom Hartman about his latest book in the Hidden History series, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. It's being released by Barrett Kohler Publishers on September 13th. And speaking of Bernie Sanders... We share with you excerpts from a speech he gave on August 31st, 2022, during a National Reunion of Rail, Maritime, and Transport Workers rally in the UK. You can find a link to the entire speech on the forthright.media website. What is going on today in the UK is no different than what is going on in the United States of America. Same bloody thing. And that is what you are seeing is people on the top, people who are phenomenally rich are becoming richer. You're seeing a middle class continue to shrink, and you're seeing millions and millions of people living in abject poverty. In the year 2022, we cannot allow that to happen, whether it's the UK or the United States. Working people all over this globe have got to stand together and tell the oligarchs they cannot have it all. And let me tell you a little bit about what's going on in my country. Today in America, you have three multi-billionaires who own more wealth than the bottom half of American society, 160 million people. No one can tell me from a moral perspective or in fact from an economic perspective, that it makes any sense at all that so few have so much and so many have so little. You know, in the United States, and I'm sure here in the UK and and around the world, we deal with serious problems of addiction. We have drug addiction and alcohol addiction and tobacco addiction and so forth and so on. But there is another addiction that the corporate media does not talk about. And that is the horrific addiction of greed. It is beyond my understanding, and I mean this seriously. Everybody, you know, wants to live a good life. Everybody wants to make a good living. Everybody wants a decent home, etc., etc. 
but it is hard for me to really understand how you have people who are worth tens and tens of billions of dollars and who every day are fighting hard to crush the working class so they can have a few billion more. Shame on them. There is no moral justification for a small number of multi-billionaires to have more wealth than they will spend in a thousand lifetimes while people are going hungry or living out on the street. In the UK and in the United States, we have got to get our priorities right, and that means creating an economy and a government that work for all, not just the few. And it's, it's not only inequality in wealth and income, it is a growing concentration of ownership. Again, the corporate media doesn't talk about this terribly much. But in sector after sector in the United States, and I doubt that it is much different here, you have a handful of large multinational corporations controlling what is produced and how much it costs in one area after the other. And right now, there are three firms on Wall Street, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, who have and control, control assets of 20 trillion dollars, three companies, that is the GDP of the United States of America. And these three companies are major stockholders in 95% of the Standard & Poor's 500 corporation list. So what you are looking at globally is a small number of billionaires who have enormous power over the economic life of the people and the political life of the people. And our challenge is to bring people together, to stand up to the demagogues who want to divide us up by the color of our skin or where we were born or our sexual orientation or whatever. Bring working people together in the fight for justice and a world that belongs to all of us, not just the people on top. It is also important as we engage in the day-to-day -day struggles that we also have the courage to think big and not small. Please remember, this is the year 2022. This is not 1922, it's not 1822. And what we have seen is a massive distribution of wealth going in exactly the wrong way. The middle class is shrinking and the people on top are getting wealthier. Our job is to take on these oligarchs, and our job is to imagine a world of justice. It is not radical, it is not radical, to say that every worker in the UK and in the United States is entitled to a decent standard of living. That's not a radical idea. It is not a radical idea. It is not a radical idea to say that not only should children not be going hungry, that we should have the best schools imaginable, that every young person in this country, in my country, who has the desire to get a higher education should be able to do that regardless of the income of his or her family. Not a radical idea. It is not a radical idea to say that at a time when psychologists tell us that zero through four are the most important years of human development, 
that we have the highest quality and affordable child care available to all of our kids. In my country right now, as I speak to you, close to 600,000 people are homeless, sleeping out on the streets of America. 18 million households are spending at least half of their income for housing. It is not a radical idea to say that everybody in this country and in my country is entitled to good, quality, affordable housing. Our job right now, internationally, is to stand together. Our job right now is to bring people all over the world together, to make it clear to the oligarchs that their day and their power is ending. Unions are now now more popular than they have been since the 1960s in the United States. So in America now, we are trying to grow the trade union movement. We're trying to combine trade unionists with the progressive movement to create an economic and political force of real power. And I'm happy to tell you we are making real success. We have more strong progressives in the U.S. House of Representatives than we have had in a very, very long time. Frederick Douglass was the great American abolitionist, and I'm paraphrasing him when he said, there is no success, no justice without struggle. They are never gonna give it to you. Do you think the oligarchs are gonna say, hey, Mick, you made a good case. We're gonna raise wages for your workers. Thanks for informing us what's going on. Do you think the advocates for food security are going to be listened to by the people on top and say, oh, thank you for telling us there. People are hungry, people can't afford food, people can't afford housing. We're, we are listening to you, we're going to respond to you. That ain't the way it works. The only way justice ever comes about, the only way working people ever make success is when we stand up, we take them on, and we win. That's what this struggle is about. We so much appreciate what you are doing. Let me tell you something. What you are doing is being noticed in the United States and around the world. You're an inspiration to people all over this globe. So let us go forward together. Let's take on corporate greed. Let's transform the world's economy. Thank you very much. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media.